What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Price. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Nobody on earth knows how many bands Esteban Flores plays in. I mean, there's Catbite, Matamosca, Mr. Kingpin. He's even played with bigger bands like the Interrupters and the English Beat. What I'm saying is, Esteban is the ska keyboardist. So we figured that Esteban needed his own episode so we could really understand what makes ska's official keyboardist tick. And be sure to get a high five from Esteban when you see him play ska in your town with one of the thousands of bands he plays with. This one's been a long time coming. Mm -hmm. We've been meaning to have this guest on for a long time. Yeah. Esteban Flores. Esteban Flores from, God, I mean, what bands, what bands are we even going to attach to him? Mata Mosca, first and foremost. Yeah. Catbite. He's played on my records. He's basically the glue for every ska band that's currently performing yeah so basically if there's a ska band that exists right now either they have esteban play with them or on their record or they're just they don't matter right one thing the racists have right is uh these immigrants are coming to steal your jobs and esteban's one of them (laughs) (laughs) oh god (laughs) that's from his meme Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do we want that on the intro? I don't know. I was listening to your interview you did on Skycast a little while back. Mm -hmm. And there's a part where you um, say that you have not bought my book yet. And that uh, you kind of pinned the whole thing on your wife because she said, no more books. You got to read the books you have first. Yes, that is true. I I, I have, I don't know. I have like at least three or four more books that I have, um, and my wife, uh, she because we you know we had we just had a kid, and, <laughs> and she she's like, well, have you read these books yet? Because you know we got to make space for the baby. And I go, oh no, I haven't. I'll get to those. And then she she told me if I don't read them by the summer, she's gonna throw all my books away. Damn. I know. By this coming summer. By this coming summer, yeah, because I mean it's gonna be half a year and. Uh, we're planning to move in July, so she's giving me about the summer, because uh, then we'll be moving out by then, and she'll probably end up throwing them out or taking them to Goodwill. 
Damn. Where are you moving to? I'm not sure yet. So I don't know when this podcast is going to be be released. Um, but I'm quitting my job uh, on the first day of the on the Portland date. I'm quitting my job. My job denied my days, and um, I just kind of thought about it. I was like, you know what, dude? Like, I I kind of want to do this for a living. I spent my twenties uh, like grinding crazy on college and working three or four jobs and playing in eight different ska bands and throwing shows and recording. I did all these things for the last 10 years and I kind of just decided I wanted to be happy. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to start door dashing because I, I found out I could make more money door dashing and I'm going to have a flexible schedule enough for me to tour with whatever band I want to tour with and at the same time provide for my family. That being said, we don't have family up here in Portland, so we might move back down south. So uh, somebody could, so somebody could watch the baby while my wife works or while I'm out, out like you know out of state or something because I'll be traveling a lot more hopefully. Family is super important when you have a kid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so this uh, I kind of I think I think we might move back down to the to the Corvallis area, um, cl- between Eugene and Portland. Okay. So I've been living up here in Portland for almost three years now, and uh, I'm originally from LA. Um. And yeah, a lot of the Scott stuff that I did is based off mostly LA. Uh, lately, it's just been blooming out of everywhere. Like I'm, I'm pretty blessed because during the pandemic, uh, I kind of had it in my head where I thought I wasn't going to be doing Scott stuff for for a while, and then like the cat bite thing blew up, and that got that was really cool because it's like you know you you watch a you watch a little baby or like a project that you like. You, you know it's going to be a good time, and then um, it just kind of blows up, and then, you know, Tim hits me up and says I was down to play with them uh, for X amount of shows and take you on the road. It was cool. It was it was really unexpected. Usually most of the bands that I jump on are, like, already established, and I got to see the establishment of a band happen before my eyes and, like, contribute to that. That was, that was pretty cool. Well, before you quit your job, you might want to pick up a copy of In Defense of Ska <laughs> and then uh, – Take that with you when you're uh, door dashing or when you're on tour with your bands. Hell yeah. All right. It's a song. Or, okay. or, or. He, could, he could wait until the second edition comes out. This is the second edition? Yeah, it's coming out in August. Damn. In Defense of Scott 2, Scott fights back. Hear me out. In Defense of Scott 2. <laughs> Hell yeah, I'm down. Okay, so I got a cat bite question for you. What's up? Okay. Tim says you eat bagels like an idiot. <laughs> he said it like that. <laughs> he said it like that. He said it like that. What does that even mean? <laughs> I raw dog bagels, dude. <laughs> That's a way. What's the other way of eating bagels? I, I don't I don't know. Okay. So so uh, we were doing this tour with, with Mustard Plug. And I fly in and, uh, you know, to Ohio. That's the first day in Ohio. So it was like last year. And I'm like hungry as hell, so we all like, um, we were like all staying in the basement. I come upstairs from the basement, and there's bagels, and everyone starts cutting up their bagels and putting cheese on it. And I literally just grabbed the bagel and take a bite out of it. And he looked at me like I murdered somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What do you, what do you mean, dude? Like, I mean, like, like, and when I grew up, like, uh, we just ate bread just the way it is. Like, we just, I never cut my bread. We will do like bolillos and sandwiches, like, like cubanos." But this, um, you know, the, the bolillo bread, I'll still eat it like that. Like, I'll still eat the whole thing without cutting it. So I assumed I could do the same thing with bagels. Man, is this going to be on the podcast? It doesn't have to be. 
<laughs> no, like, it, it should be because I'm going to be like, man, fuck you, Tim. <laughs> Hear that shit. Spotify is paying for that shit, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I want to hear about the time that you met Kenny. From what I hear, Kenny was too shy to talk to anybody in Catbite, but you and Kenny were had a had a little connection by playing a piano together in the Airbnb. Uh, well, I mean that 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 was already when the connection was established. Yeah, let's hear your side of this. Let's hear your story. My side of the story is is I was playing the Nice One CD release, and Kenny comes up to me at the at the very end. I I don't know anybody aside the band and. Maybe a couple people. I had a couple friends that came and visit me from Philly that I that I've made a lot along the years. But towards the end of the show, Kenny comes up to me, and I knew him as Kimoy, a Kimoy. But I I I did ask him. It's it's there's a receipt that I did ask him saying I could call him Kimoy. And this uh, he told me, hey, you know, my name's Kenny. Or call me Kimoy. Um, you know, tape girl said hi, and I was like, oh yeah, hey, what's up? You know, I gave him a hug and hoped I saw saw him another time. And then I started seeing him on on uh, on Twitter a lot, and and you know he does the the videos of his like um, observations of of things going on musically with Scott and with composition and piano playing. And I was like, man, this cat this cat knows what's up. Like this cat knows knows what he's talking about. So um, so then there was a point where where Catbike couldn't couldn't you know fly me over from coast to coast all the time. And they're doing tours to Canada, and and at the moment I'm like still kind of working out on my visa situation because I used to be undocumented, and then now you know I got married and I'm going through this process of legalization. And so I was, I told Tim, you know what, uh, leave me up to it. I'll find someone that I think it's is capable. And then Cap, I was doing their own search on a meanwhile, but I I kind of already had in mind Kenny, and I was throwing Kenny's name to Tim because I was like, well, he's in New York, and then he, he uh he sounds like he knows what he's doing. So I'm gonna chance it on Kenny. I I messaged Kenny and then Kenny showed interest and then I kept kind of playing middleman. And then Tim Tim liked it. Tim enjoyed it and then I was happy. You know, I I was happy to be part of the fact that I made made him my sub. And so, you know, he's doing most of the Jeff the Jeff tour and I think Kenny agreed to just come and come and hang out for part of the Seattle the Seattle dates that, he, that I was playing was Catbite. And we were in this B&B for a couple of days and I was kind of enjoying, just enjoying my time off and hanging out. And we found, we went to this B&B and it was crazy because the whole time we were just kind of just not doing anything. And then like the last, the last day, uh, we find this rehearsal room under this B&B. There was like a whole reggae rehearsal room. Like this person, I feel like he, he brings artists from Jamaica and I think bands rehearse there to back them up. Anyways. The, the the coolest thing about that is that we were washing our clothes and Brittany found like sixteen hundred dollars in in cash in the dryer and a in a bag of weed like a whole bike bag of weed so I was like oh this guy's a dealer so <laughs> we put his money we, we put his money in the weed to the side and everybody's walking in because we're like yo there's a rehearsal room here let's check it out so then I started playing on the drums and I started playing the congas and the keyboards and the guitars and everything and and like Chris and everyone's looking like. Holy shit! Where does this money and this weed come from? And then we're like, "Don't touch it! I don't want to get killed." You know, I see Pineapple Express. I don't want to fuck with people's shit. Um, <laughs> and so we just didn't touch that money. But later on, we just started going back up, and there's a piano in this BNB, and we just kind of started playing like Catbite songs. And 
Kenny started like showing interest in like the way I would I would play my approach to reggae music and my approach to sky music, and then he'll show me his approach, and we're like, we'll we'll uh, like kind of work out a medium and of what I think that you know, hey, maybe you want to hear, if you want to play like this, you should play like this, or if you know, if you think this sounds you know too little, you, should, you could add these little variants or these little uh, embellishments to the song just to make it shine or whatever. And then we just kind of started playing um, "Not Your Baby." And then next thing you know, I think Tim had the bright idea of just making a, a like a promo video song. And when it comes to Catbite, like I, I just tend to be like very uh, impulsive. I'm just a very impulsive guy with them because they they give me the freedom of just being myself. So like I know they're trying to show good face, but I'm just like, oh, I'm just gonna go in there and just start jamming out. And I just started jamming out, and I think Kenny was very like intrigued with the way I would dance around the piano, but. Man, Kenny's Kenny's killer. Like, if if Kenny gives me credit, I I feel bad because I I just don't practice as much as Kenny would. Kenny's amazing. Like, I I gotta give him his props. And yeah, that's how he bonded. I see. Did you also bond over uh, uh, Tokyo Ska Paradise Orchestra with Kenny? I I'm not sure if we ever talked about Tokyo. Like Tokyo Tokyo is hands down like my number one favorite band. If if you want to start a conversation any day with me, just be like, oh yeah, Tokyo this or Tokyo that, and I'll I'll start bringing out albums and names and stuff like that. But I I don't remember. I was I mean I was we were also partying pretty hard. I don't remember uh, talking to Kenny about Tokyo that much, unfortunately. So you you told um you told the LA Weekly once that uh, the, your favorite show you'd ever seen was the Tokyo Ska Paradise Orchestra at the Observatory. Is that still your number one show? You know what? It it really was because it's like the first t- it's like the first time experiencing experiencing uh uh to- like Tokyo. You know, it's it was a band that I've like looked at looked up to musically and performance wise since I was like a fifteen year old, and it was like even before I started playing keys with the band, and um just it's like seeing it live it, it lives up to the hype because I feel like there's some bands that like you know you you see them and then like you know they're when I see them, I, they're like a lot older or, you know, it was a performance from back in the 90s and they're older now. And they don't move as much anymore. But Tokyo, it's just timeless. You're there and they're like moving the same way and you feel like um, you didn't lose out on the energy that they, they were giving back in the day. It's It was very, um, it was amazing. And then seeing them, and then seeing them, uh, I saw them maybe three more times. I saw them like three more times after that, I think. And um, it just kept getting better because they just have such a, long repertoire that they don't i like every almost every single time i see them i hear two or three songs that i remember but they kept the repertoire very different like every single time i was like oh i remember, I know this song is from this album or oh i know this song is from this other album or i can't believe they picked this song like stuff like that is there your uh your favorite album by theirs is the self-titled album uh actually it is the full tension beaters i i, I used to like self-titled a lot but full tension beaters um it's just my most familiar album like it's like it flows, you know, you start off with Filmmaker's Bleed, and then it goes on to Five Days of Tequila, then it goes on to the Ender the Dragon theme. It's, it's just, like, super, so consistent. It's, like, um, I, I like albums that are just consistently in hype in that, like, uh, in the sense where there's not a single moment where I'm just, like, man, it, it really dragged. It's just, like, really, it just keeps getting better and better and better and better. I like high-energy stuff like that. Okay, so you have uh, told, you told Project Spectrum that, East LA is the best scene in the world, or I'm sorry, in the U.S. I'm not sure if you say world. L.A. L- I th- I think L.A. is I think L.A. It, to me, I mean, it's, it's my bias, and people are gonna roll their eyes over it, you know. But I don't give a fuck. 
L.A. I feel has has the best the best scene. I feel has the best scene. There was a moment, and I was I was just thinking about it today too, and I was like, I don't know if Adam will remember, but I I I the first time I I met Adam, I um first of all I was I, I, I was a fan of Link Eighty, like the one of the bands I worked with. Uh, we covered uh, Step Up, and I told and I told about I told it to Adam, and at some point I was really interested in like, hey, do you, do you guys just want to like come down to L.A. so, um. The first time meeting Adam was on my birthday, because the show happened to be on my birthday, and it was like at the at Los Globos, and it was Omnigon and Matamosca and my other band Cafe Con Tequila and Restore Bums. Anyways, I I I left because it was during my birthday. I played and the, and um my wife just wanted to take me out to eat, but then I did see a post of like Adam still at Los Globos, and he was just kind of like floored by the fact that like kids were still dancing till one a.m. and it's like it's like that that energy all the time, and I'm. I, I, I'm so used to it, and it's normal to me. But I, I don't see that kind of that kind of thing outside of LA. I, I don't see the kind of the kind of energy where people are like dancing nonstop till one a.m. We should clarify a little bit there, though. Dancing till one a.m., but the band wasn't even playing at that point. It was just the music over the PA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> like it, it, that's, that's wild. Like that's next level. Yeah. So that was that was kind of the the ener- the energy I saw. And I remember seeing that post, and I'm just, and I was, I think I was a little more like happy that that point got across more than than the show was great. I was like, cool, like somebody sees the potential, somebody knows, you know, it exists. Because um, for a long time since I was since I was a kid, I've 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 not been like very like uh, it's not like very preachy about it, but I've always been very like you know, LA ska exists. It's a thing. It's not just stuck in this bubble. It is stuck in this vault, but it, it it's it's something that's like real because a lot of people. And I I promised today too. I I told my wife I wasn't gonna like unleash my hater energy because I'm not a I'm not a hater. I'm just <laughs> and I don't want to start any issues with anybody. You could put this on the behind the curtains thing. I don't give a shit. Um, <laughs> fucking, I just I just don't think there's a lot of bands that match up to the hype of an LA ska band. It's just there's just a, you know I've heard plenty of bands. I've played with plenty of bands, and there's just not. Like I, it doesn't put me on the same way an LA Scott band would. I could I I played um Scotland yesterday, not yesterday. I uh, shit this weekend that passed, and uh, at first I was gonna be like ah you know I'm I'm probably just twelve for this. I was working one of the stages, I was working with Clemente, and and um you know I'm I'm here thinking like ah I'm twelve for this, and everyone's t- and all the stage guys are all like seen seen veterans, and we're just talking about like. Ah, I'd rather be home and hanging out with my kids. We're all older people now. Um, I'm the youngest one for sure, but everyone's also in their 40s. And the next thing you know, the show starts playing, and I'm walking around these stages on this quick break, and uh, and still the same thing. I'm like, nope, wouldn't trade it for the world. This this like LA Sky is just something so unique compared to almost any other place that I that I played. Don't and that that being said, I I respect every everything else going on in every other part of the country. But um, I do believe that LA Scott should be something that should be explored more. You know, people should really take an interest in like diving to other uh, other groups like that. Because to my point of view, when when I got it, when I started doing the the like outside LA ska bands, when I started playing with like Catbite and started playing with Where the Union and you know Jamming Out with Omnigon, Jamming Out with just other bands outside of LA, everything that I saw felt alien to me, even though I felt normal to you guys. Mm. And in contrast, like you know, when I talk to Brent about the bands from LA, I I I feel like he gets it, but he doesn't really get it. Get it, you know? 
when you do eventually read in defense of ska <laughs> you will learn <laughs> you will learn that i uh went to ska wars in 2015 we did talk, we did talk about that i remember you told me that okay um were you do you i don't know if you can remember specific years but were you at uh, ska wars in 2015 yeah plaza de la raza Yes, correct. Yeah, yeah. This, um, yeah, I, I, I remember that one. It was, it wasn't with leftover crack, right? It was with no. Inspector, Inspector, and I know Nana Pancho was there. Oh, okay. It was Nana Pancho and Out of Control Army. Yes, correct. Okay, I'm not looking at a fire. I promise you. This, this one just came out straight to the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, no cheat sheet. No, no cheat sheet at all. Everything. I, I wish you guys could see what I'm, what I'm. I'm not looking at it at all. I promise. Yeah, it was, it was, it was that because then I remember. Um, it was it was deals from Medical Army's first show here, and I remember talking to the bassist on the pancha. Yeah, 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 I remember that one for sure. And um, damn, I, I miss that venue, like in Plaza de la Raza. Yeah. Uh, so to be clear for people, Plaza de la Raza is so it's just it's just part of a park. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a little area. So there's like a there's a larger park, and people are out there, you know, picnicking with their families or whatever. And then there's like a segment of the park that is like this outdoor uh, stage area. And that's where the show was. But it's kind of separated. So, you know, you had to actually get a ticket to get in and, and that stuff. My moment of being kind of blown away by that experience was that it was 2015 and that there was like tons of like young people. Like it wasn't just people who were in their 30s and 40s who had just grown up with ska and just continued to like it. It's like new people new people joining the scene and most of the bands were local. A couple bands were from Mexico um, and they knew they were down with it. They knew the lyrics. They were, they were singing along. They were pumped. I, I hadn't really seen a local scene, like never mind ska. I hadn't really seen a local scene with that much energy. So, you know, I can't even remember last time I've seen a local scene with that kind of energy. So, so, and so then next, here's where I, where the part where I, I get all preaching and stuff like that. Yeah. Let's hear your, let's hear your sermon. That, that scene has existed for years. I grew up with that scene. I've been, I've been in the LA scene since, you know, 2006, 2005. And we started off from a pocket of misfits to what it, what it was. And that, that was always something present. It was at some point normal to us. And I'd always kept telling people this thing exists, you know, that Scott's this big is really, it's real. And, um, and then when people get bl so blown away by it, they're like, "Oh, I can't believe there's this many young kids in the sky." I was like, "There's been this many young kids in the sky. We're we're everywhere in LA. I I could you know walk to downtown LA and I'll run into a couple fans and we'll talk for a little while and we'll be like, "Oh, I see you on the show on Saturday," or you know stuff like that. Or my mom, she works at a she worked at in downtown LA at a warehouse and at a at a uh, what do you call them uh, like a gourmet Italian spot. And my mom would even text me every once in a while. Hey, you got some fans coming in here. They, they say hi, hi to you. Okay, yeah, tell them to say hi back. <laughs> my, dude, my mom gets fucking. She, she's she's a fucking rock star because she now she gets double because my my brother plays in this really popular soul band called the Sincere's, and I'm here playing in these fucking ska bands. So it's it's always like my mom's always getting you know, hey, what's up? You're you know the the Flores brothers' mom, and she's getting all the fucking love all the time. And good on her. Yeah, good on her. Yeah, so yeah, that's that's kind of my preaching part where it's like it's something that has have ex existed and I feel has the potential of 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 doing something well, but it just needs to focus cuz a lot of the bands never really really um have the opportunity to 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 travel. A lot some of these bands are undocumented or some of them are young or some of them are poor 
And then some of them just, just prioritize other things and just, you know, traveling. And they'll just stay in this, like, cir- the circuit of L.A. backyards or clubs or festivals. And they never really tend to leave. There's very few bands that I know that that, that have left L.A. To, to attempt to do a thing. Well, name, name some uh, bands from that scene that you think are d- deserving of more attention. Oh, my fucking God. Uh, there is uh, La Banas Calavera. There is La Resistencia, Rascahuele, Red Store Bums deserves it. Los Ochocalacas, La Pobresca, Café con Tequila, Salsa de Skankers, Delirians. Uh, people know the Delirians, the 3045s. People know who the 3045s are. I'm upset that the Delirians don't have a record out on vinyl. I went to go buy one the other day and you couldn't. There is one record that I know of in it, and it was on Mundus Records, and it's um, a single, a 7-inch. That's That's all that I know that they have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw the seven inch, but I want like I don't want to have to keep flipping it over. I want a long, I want a long play. Uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. I, uh, Angel, if you're hearing this, try get try get the LP going. That's that's my boy right there. Okay, so we established your favorite show in general, but what's your favorite local show that you've ever been to in LA? Could be if could be one of the festivals. Could just be uh, just a, a normal, you know, couple band bill. I don't I, like. I don't want. I don't want to get get high get high off my own. You know my own farts. But when I when I was a promoter, when I was a promoter throwing shows, there's this this lineup that I think about really often, and there's a, a video of it on YouTube, and I think about it. Um, it ended up being one of my favorite shows for the fact that you you can never get a lineup of local bands like this for the, for that cheap of a price, and it was like, um, it was at a skate shop that I that I threw this show on. And it was like at a 150, uh, the 150 person capacity skate shop. And I ended up getting 400 people in there. <laughs> and, uh, people were like on top of the ramps. The, the, the layout was, was flawed because the, the light switch was in the middle of the, of the, of the pit. So the light kept flickering in and out. And then, uh, it was like Delirians, Mente Corrupta, Café con Tequila, Blanco y Negro. This band called LA Crooks, this other band called Decolequa. Um, and it was six dollars all night. And it and, and now nowadays that lineup will go up for higher. Um, but I I think about that. I think I think because I never seen such a you know chaotic show happening that it just stays in my head and sometimes I'm just like, Yeah, that's like my adolescence. I can't believe I did that at nineteen. I had such a I had such a fun time doing that. So can you remember the first time you went to one of these shows? So you were, um, you were a little, you were a gamer kid. Uh, you were on your path to be a, a scientist or something. And then you, uh, somebody, gra- somebody dragged you to one of these shows and your life has forever changed. Is that the story? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I basically remember, I remember my first show. I remember the person, like I remember the, the person who got me into my first show. We had a ska band for, for a couple years. Um, yeah, so ironically, it was in my science class that I I met my my friend Danny, and we it was just by chance because his 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 last name was Flores and my last name was Flores, so we were seated together, and he was the dude that told me like about Sky. He was like, "Hey, you like this?" And he like introduced me to Sublime, and I know what Sublime was, so that's what I got in. That 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 was an easy path, and then he got me into like, like Sectacore, and Sectacore was something that I was like, "Whoa, this is really tight. This is really cool," and then he told me like, "Hey." Uh, there's a venue down the street from our high school um, 
they're, they're throwing like an afternoon of ska show, like an afternoon at Tardera, which is a, an afternoon of ska or an afternoon of uh, an afternoon program. Um, do you want to go? And I'm just like, oh, you know, I got to tell my mom. I I never really gone. To, I've only gone to one show before, and that was like a punk show. And um, you know, yeah, I'll go. I'll give I'll give it a shot. My mom gives me gives me permission. But I asked my mom, and she gives me some money. It's me and my brother. And and this show, um, it is. I remember. I remember. I just remember Rascabelle being the headliners, and I remember like a couple of local bands, like Awesome Possum and. Um, this band called Yerba Mala and Ecolecua. I remember those bands. But I remember like going to that show and then there's like they started doing the small pit and my friend told me, you, you know how to skank or you know how to like pit? I said no. And then somebody told me, um, it's like it's like uh tripping forward. He, they kind of told me it's like tripping <laughs> forward. And I'm like, I don't know, I don't know how to trip forward. Am I gonna fall on there? They kind of showed me slow motion how to how to do it. And then I, I gave it a shot and I kept going, and, and ever since then. I was like, man, I have to do more of these shows. And that, that was kind of like that first show really got me into like talking to my friend Danny saying, yo, if there's more of these, you got to let me know because I'll, I'll go, I'll show up. And for a long time, I went to that, to that same venue to go to these shows. And then when that venue closed down, we started kind of looking for like backyards and the backyard scene was like still growing. And um, we would go to these backyard, these shady backyard shows and uh, see all these cool bands. And I, I just had tons of fun. I spent like the first like two, three years just going to shows and I wasn't playing in a band yet. And um, it was cool. And I was completely sober at that time too. So like um, it, it's it's funny because like there's a stigma with like uh, with with kids who, who go to these shows. They're like, oh, how can you go to a show sober like that? I mean, it's, it's a bad image, obviously. But at the time I was like, man, I can't believe I just went just to go dance and hang out and not just, you know, do anything else that's shady and inconspicuous. It's kind of crazy. Can you remember a backyard show you've been to that had the most people? Because some of those backyard shows uh, have a good amount of people, right? <laughs> Pretty packed. No, oh, oh yeah, per, yeah, really, really fucking packed. I'm just, I'm just trying to think because there was a bunch of them. There, there used to be this lot. There used to be this lot in um, not this lot. It, it was a backyard of, of of one of my my old friend's house on like 92nd and Compton, which is like in Watts. Right off the one hundred five, and he threw this show for an anniversary for his for his old band, Descarados, and it was like the third year anniversary or fifth year or whatever, something like that. And first of all, like the house that that house, like um, the person that the person that runs it is like my friend's family member, and I'll say that for the sake of safety because I don't want to burn nobody out. But the family member happens to be connected with with a drug ring. So the cops, the cops wouldn't pass by. So they're like, "Yeah, it's safe, Mike. This is this is an area that you know, it's protected. In in you know, there's a gang there protecting the place. You'll be safe. It won't get raided. We'll go on all night. Cool, whatever. As long as they don't they don't harm anybody, you're good." And so we we but the Mosca was playing the show. We were kind of like the co-headliners, invited guests, and we go and we're playing this, and it was just this huge back huge backyard that looked like it was like somebody was repairing cars in it but all the cars got moved to the side and it was just it was incredibly it was incredibly packed i remember looking up going to the roof and then looking down and it was like a sea of people you could jump from you could jump from the roof and you'll land on somebody you're not gonna hit the floor you're gonna land on somebody it, it was just incredibly packed and at some and at that point too i was like very conscious of the idea too where i'm just like man i can't believe like the scene has gone this far and i and i reflect on that a long time ago for for a while because 
like, it, you know, we, we came from, like, when I just started the scene, it, you know, a pack show would be, like, 200 kids. And now it's, like, you know, uh, uh, 200 kids at a backyard is, like, a poor turnout. So now it's, like, normal to have a lot more kids than, than it is back then. When did you get started booking? So you booked under the name Top Shot Productions? Man, you... I was thinking too. I was like, "Man, this guy's this guy gonna bust some Nardwar shit on me <laughs> for sure." I, I was, I was, I was trying to see. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I started booking gigs. It was after high school. I so I wasn't documented, and um, to to make some money for college, is I would I would throw shows. I I used to work at job agencies, and I would do this thing where I would work for one semester and then study for another semester, but. I, I was determined. I was like, I'm not going to let go of college. I'm going to try and graduate. And so while I was doing, while I was doing, um, while I was doing college, I was throwing shows or planning shows. And I was like, okay, I could make some extra money on the side for books or for tuition or for food or whatever. So I started throwing shows when I was like 17. And um, my first show, it was my me and my friend Juan. And um, I knew Juan for, for a while. I forgot how I met him. We first definitely met her at a show, and at first I thought he was a bit of an asshole, but then he was like, he was determined to make something. He was he he made he laid out this plan of like, if we do this plan like this, like like we could make money doing shows. And I was like, okay, I'm I'm in because I gotta pay for college, and I feel like this is an easier way so I could focus during the week on school, and then the weekends I'll be doing ska. I started we started scouting and looking for for places, and and the first show ironically was that skate shop. And I went to the skate shop, and the guy was was very nice to let us throw it, throw his throw a show in the skate shop with the condition that we don't overpack it. But we ended up. But then he started saying money into it. And he was just like, "Cram, cram that show! Like if, we're, if you're making money, then I'm making money." That I I thought it was gonna be like a small thing, but it seems like it's successful. Um, and this uh, after that, I I kind of just decided I was like, you know what? I, I think throwing shows is fun. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's stressful at the moment, but it, I think it's, it's super fun to do and I kind of want to do more. So then, um, me and my friends were kind of just th- throwing names around, like, what should we call each other? What should we call ourselves? It should be something like where, where it sounds big and it sounds cool. And we're like, oh, it'll just be, you know, top shot. You know, we're, we're top shots here. We're, we're, we're like the, the, the big, the big brothers of the Scott scene, just trying to like bring affordable shows to to the crowds at the same time we want to pay bands right because also a very big thing that happens in LA is that bands get underpaid or they get screwed over by promoters it's a very common thing that happens so we we were trying to like find this medium where we go make affordable shows and serve bands um so that's kind of where we started but with the incentive of like if I can make a little money off college then I I I will you know did you book any uh, out-of-town bands any bigger bands I I tried. I remember I tried, and and a lot of the bigger bands couldn't couldn't do it. That initially, that's how I met John from Root King, which you know is Mr. Kingpin. Um, I know we were talking for a while about wanting to him wanted to bring Root King to LA, and I tried making it work, but I think something fell through. I tried bringing this other band called Malafacha from Chicago, and that fell through. I, I think at some point, my my main point was. Like something, something started manifesting out of these shows where I was just, you know what? These shows are so tight. I want to bring that experience of LA shows. I want to bring it elsewhere. So that's why I started bringing bands from LA to start playing. Like we had, we did a show in Texas thanks to the help of my my sister Tiana, and then we did a show at at the Gilman, 
And that was pretty cool. Like, we started doing stuff like that and started trying to, like, bring the word of L.A. Scott outside of L.A. and try to make something out of it, you know? And I feel that that's where I got a lot of respect from a lot of the bands that I started working with because they, they saw that I was constantly trying to hustle and trying to, to elevate the scene as a whole, not just, you know, make money off something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so the, the local Fox News 11 uh, decided that they needed to do a segment on you and the backyard scene that you fostered. And, and here we go. Here's where we hit full circle. Here's where the where the main thing happened. Yeah. Yeah, dude. dude. Oh, my. And then to this day, I'm going to say it. That was the weirdest fucking thing in my life. And and I've gotten a lot of weird hit-ups that, that ended up being pretty cool. But to this day, that was the weirdest thing, like, like I don't know how they got my I don't know how they got my number I don't know how they got my number. So, so okay, so they called you. They said, "Hey, we want to do a segment." Yeah, they called. They it was a straight up call. It was like, and it was I'm mean, you know mind you, it was like 2011, 2012, and um, and I had I I got this call from this number, and it was this guy who he he just he, I don't know, dude. It was it was he got it was this guy, and he just kind of kept talking a mile a minute. And he was like, "Yo, I got your number from the source." And he says, "He says he said the source really fast. I just never got it." So I was like, "Okay, whatever. Yeah, how can I help you?" And he goes, "Well, you know, I'm a I'm a producer and and a film man for Fox Eleven. I'm interested in throwing a uh, doing a piece on your on your uh, on your shows on you." And I'm just like, you know, at first I was thinking it was a prank because I I. A lot, a lot of people would also make fun of me for throwing shows because, like, it, it was still when Scott was not really popular. So I was like, oh, you know, I stand with the Scott kid. Ha, ha, ha. Really funny, you know? So I was just like, you know, oh, you're fucking with me, right? Like, this is, you're going to, you want to, you, you, Fox 11 wants to hit me up to throw a show when there's, you know, better promoters out there throwing bigger shows. And he's just like, no, I see what you're doing and I really enjoy what you're doing and it's cool. And then I go, okay, you know what? Uh, and I, I kind of ha- had to test it. I'm like, give me a call tomorrow. I'm doing homework right now because it was in the nighttime. If you're serious about this, you give me a call around this around set time, and and let's talk about this because I kind of still think this is a prank. But if you're serious about it, hit me up. So then he hit me up the next day and he explained what he needed, and I just have to give him a show. And I go, you know what? I'm actually planning a show in a March. I got this new this tattoo place, which is uh like kind of by Sunset where where Chavez and Sunset kind of merge and it becomes Echo Park. It was a cool tattoo place that I was looking at for a while and the person was nice enough to let me use his, his lot. And so he goes, cool. And then he started kind of talking talking uh, the guidelines to me and he goes, listen man, I I don't want to fuck up your image. I don't want to, I don't want to ruin your image but we're going to go there and if there's somebody drunk, underage, on drugs, on pot, or something, and if the camera catches it, it's gonna be on the news. Just letting you know, because there's, because and then next thing you know, that I um I go okay, that's fine, that's that's okay. I think that's a bet I'm willing to take if it's gonna be a good publicity move. And then next thing you know, I started announcing it. Hey, I'm doing this show. It's gonna be this this banger lineup. It's gonna be on Fox, and that's when like hell broke loose. Be- People started like attending, like you know, it used to be back when Facebook was really active, and I put, made the event, and I said it's gonna be on Fox. This is gonna be big. I'm not fucking with you guys. This is a, a big thing. Bands instantly started wanting to hit me up and play, and I re- and I stood, I stood my ground on the bands I wanted to get. It was a bunch of my homie bands, and then I get this call from Clemente, and then Clemente calls me, and it, and to the listener, you know, listened, you know, a couple episodes back, you know, who Clemente is. 
Um, Lambert calls me with concern, and it and it comes nowadays thinking as an adult and as someone who loves the scene, it comes with reason that I could have potentially made the scene in LA look bad. And Clemente worked on the scene. You know, I have a lot of respect on him that he like grew the scene from his infancy, and I could have potentially damaged the image of Halaskasi Nesines. So he 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 gave me a grievance, and I understood the grievance, but I I think I was more like confident on the fact that I you know. Drugs we're not gonna get shown. We're not gonna. We're gonna make. We're gonna do our very best to omit that, like to the to the camera. And so that was that's a whole other story in itself. Anyways, we go we go to the day of the show. Although at least the night of the show, and the guy calls me. We're gonna be there at this time. This is gonna happen. This is what you're gonna do. And then when I get there, you know, go you know come to, come out to the front, speak your story, and then we're gonna go inside. And then whatever whatever we catch is whatever we catch. Cool. Whatever. And so next thing you know, the day of the show comes, starts setting everything up. First band comes, starts playing. The van pulls up. And that's when the kids are just like cheering and flipping off, you know, the fucking van and whatever. And then that's when I'm like, here, here we fucking go. Here's here's where the whole thing just is going to gonna go to shit, you know, whatever. Um, the van comes and I'm doing my part, my interview. And then the, camp, then the guy looks at me and he goes, are you ready? And I go, I'm ready. Let's do this. And the camera goes in and it's just capturing these wild pictures of the kids in the pit. And the entire time I would catch something with beer or something, I would divert the camera. Like I would move it and be like, no, 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 let's go this way instead. Let's go this way instead. No, 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 let's go this way instead. It's just, we start diverting it and it, it was just comical. It was funny because it was me and my friend, my friend Angel. We're just diverting this camera. I'm making sure they capture some cool angles, making sure some, some cool shit's happening. And we like... We just straight up di- divert the entire thing. The guy comes out. He said it was a, it was a success. He was gonna gonna give me a call for my information, and uh, the show the show was wild. I mean, like um, I paid off all the bands, and and I still made like two thousand dollars to myself. And and I think with that, I bought I bought a guitar. I could I remember buying a guitar clearly with that money. You bought a guitar. That was your big investment at the time. It was it. Are you, are you giving me grievance now? I don't. Don't I remember? I'm not giving you grievance. The grievance I'm going to give you is I haven't seen you play a guitar. Well, I'm over that phase. I, I've not. Well, I've not seen one clip of Catbite and you walk on stage with a guitar. I pick up the keyboard now. I think that's way cooler. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So so that happens, and then the guy hits me up and he sends me this email form about like putting my information and putting something I want to put like a shout out or some kind of information so people could know where to find me. And around that time, Matamosca was recording their album. And the whole time, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure Clemente was tense with the idea that I did this. And even though he told me not to do it, but the day it was going to release, the day it was going to release um, was the day I was, I was recording keyboards at Clemente's studio. And it was just this energy that was, he was just quiet with me the whole time. And I'm recording keyboards. And I'm just like, I'm terribly uncomfortable because I know right, I know by the time I get home, shit's going to happen, you know? And I, I didn't have a phone back in the day. I, it was before I had a phone. And whatever was going to happen was whatever's going to happen. I'm, I'm going to get home. By the time I get home, the program's over. So whatever showed was whatever showed. And then if it's bad, then then I'm just going to hide my face for a while. <laughs> and and if it's good, then that's good. And I'm, I'm just happy it ended up being good because... I ended up getting so many nice messages from people and I, I had so many people adding me on Facebook. Like I think there's still people that I'm friends with because of that to this day. 
and um, and it was cool because then I, I I started like I went to school to college the next day, and everyone told me I heard you on K Rock or you know because they'll do like the the programs like the tonight on what on Fox Eleven and they start talking about you know the story is going to happen on the radio, and people will be like I heard you on K Rock or I heard you on K Love or on K Earth and. I was like, oh, that's cool, you know, and people just started, like, talking to me, which is, which, uh, recognizing the fact that I started doing something legitimate, and uh, that was a cool moment, like, I, I still think about the, I still think about it as a, as a cool highlight, because I was like, you know, not every 19-year-old or every 18-year-old get, gets to have that kind of experience of, of getting that kind of attention for doing something cool for this scene, because at, towards the end, like, like, at the, at the very end of it, like, it's something that I, I tried hard, wholeheartedly showing my, my love to the scene, because I feel like it deserves to be shown. Yeah. So you started playing music uh, around 13 or 14, right? Yeah. Uh, you'd had a few bands in the beginning. Um, at one point, you played drums in an indie rock band? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, it was me, my one of my best friends, Juan, uh, and then um, t- two friends of mine, Ish and Adam. And uh, I, th- I think I was... I was tw- 20 i think it was 20 okay this is a later band what's the band called that band was was called i i philosophy it was just like an indie rock band it was kind of like the guy trying to sound like like morrissey but with like joy division beats and that was, that was kind of when i just started learning how to play like drums but it'd be a lot of dancey drums and it was cool because it that kind of started started me as as like knowing how to play drums and i mean nowadays like i could i could play sky drums pretty pretty fucking pretty fucking good um not like not like brant you know um, but, but I'm Shout just out, throwing Brent. that out there. Cause I know he's going to listen to this. I don't play good. I don't play good. Like Brant, you know, <laughs> but I, I go, I could hold it down. Um, cause I, I have played drums from Matamosca a couple of times when, when our drummer, uh, couldn't make it. And I was just like, throw me some sticks, throw me some cymbals. Let's fucking get through the set, you know? So that's, that's fun. But so, but the keyboard's your instrument. Um, your, uh, first inspiration was, uh, Ray Manzarek from Doors, right? Yep, I'm a huge Doors fan. I have a Doors tattoo on my arm. Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 my number one. I I uh my my mom when uh, she told me when we were babies, she would put us on to classic rock music, and the Doors was like a big thing. And that's something I kind of just it was just it just synonymous to to my entire life where where like I I've always had the Doors kind of like a like a a theme song to my life, kind of going on with everything that I'm doing up to this day. Like I mean. The, uh, nowadays I don't listen to the door as much. I don't obsess over it as much as other people other people would. But like, I I don't know. When I feel like listening to the doors, I don't listen to just one song. I'll listen to like a whole album. Like, okay, I feel like listening to the soft parade today, or I feel like listening to self titled. And then I start picking at it, and I'm like, man, these guys were these guys were punk rock for their time. You know, I, I think there's there's like a quote to that Iggy Pop said that, that the doors were punk rock of back in the day, um, but just because yeah. an attitude and the way they played. But this um. I, I I like to credit a lot of my rebelliousness and like the punk attitude to like the Doors because they broke boundaries musically, and I feel like I tried to like imitate that with my playing and my lifestyle of just trying to like you know always try to think outside the box when it comes to like writing something or when it comes to just like adapting towards the situation in life. When I was in high school Spanish, uh, I had a teacher named Mr. Corzo. I had the same teacher. Yeah. Okay. Obsessed with the doors. Uh, I believe he mentioned them like at least three times a week. He al- he also did a, um, a lip sync as Jim Morrison. For, uh, 
for like a teacher talent show thing. <laughs> I, I had a I had an English teacher who uh, he saw me wear a door shirt once, and then he got really weird with me once because he he looked at my shirt and he goes, "That's a nice shirt you have." And I go, "Hey, thanks, man." And this this guy looks he 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 looks kind of like a, like a nice eye like a like Al Bundy but with nice eyes. So he had this very <laughs> stoic. Very stoic look. I, I don't know, a very weird look. And he goes, it's a nice shirt you got. And I go, thanks, man. And he goes, I want to go see the doors once. And I go, well, I mean, you couldn't see the doors because Jim died. But I understand you want to see, you know, Ray and Robbie and John. He goes, yeah. And then uh, he goes, uh, Ray hit on my, my wife. Um, but my wife was more interested in me, you know. So fuck Robbie. Uh, I mean, so fuck Ray Manzarek. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, all right, dude, whatever. You look scary right now. You're giving me this crazy look in your face and I don't feel comfortable around you. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's like the only thing. That's the only thing I have. And then my, the other thing I guess that I remember about teachers is that one of my, one of my um, algebra, one of my algebra teachers, Mr. Vogel, he was like he's like really good friends with somebody from the Aquabats or something like that. I don't know. That's one of the things too. I don't know. Teachers are weird. I the the older I got, the more I realized that teacher, teachers are just normal adults that like shitty things like we do. Shitty things. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there's not a lot of uh, okay, there's not a lot of keyboardists in the ska scene or a competent keyboardists. Hence the fact that you play in like 30, 30 to eighty bands. I, I think I yeah I I think I could confidently say like thirty to eighty, maybe even fifty, <laughs> 50 to eighty. I, I I think I could confidently say if you want to like, I always say it if if it's like played in joined bands, I would say twenty. But if like jumped in and covered bands, it'd be like fifty. Or if it's just jammed out in one song and said, "Hey, what's up?" and leave, it'd probably like eighty bands. Can you do? Uh, can you? I've seen some videos where you do this. Uh, I don't know if you can do this in a concise way, but can you explain keyboard technique for ska, reggae, rock, steady? Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, the basic way I br- you break it down is like, um. It's it's very percuss- it's a percussive playing. It's it's all perc- it's basically all percussion, uh, in the sense where one hand's playing the offbeat and then one hand's playing the onbeat. The onbeat being the one and then the offbeat being the and one and two and three and four and, and um so your and is basically the m m m m your skank, mm-hmm. as as people call it, um and then your 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 bottom hand uh you could either just play the downbeat and that kind of helps you balance your skank. Or some people just play the skank in general, and that took me a while to get because you kind of have to fall into pocket. Because um, a lot of the pianists would just they wouldn't even play the on beat; they just play the skank. But then you start going into like things like two tone and organ playing, and people start applying the second hand, and that second hand will play uh, the the other beat, kind of just to contradict the off beat. The way I try to the way I try to explaining organ is basically just like like playing drums. Because if you if you shift your hand. Like if you shift your your so pretend I'm playing the skank, and I'm playing uh and I'm playing it with my right hand and my right hand's going eh 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 and my other hand is doing eh 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 eh, eh is doing that and you apply drums to it I'm basically just doing the hi hat and the click of the snare click so it's it's very like I'm mimicking the drums and your your or your organ or your or your piano is just supposed to be clicking with the hi hat the hi hat. And the high-end sky music is very important because it's what glues the guitar and the piano and the organ all together. So I always tell people, if you want to play authentic Jamaican Jamaican ska, 
always focus on your drummer. The better the drummer, the better your pocket's going to be and the better your playing's going to sound. If your drummer is, is still getting new, just try and tighten up as a rhythm. If you're playing faster stuff, obviously you're playing things with a little bit more drive. And that and after that, you would just have to focus on your, on your guitarist. Your, your guitarist is what's going to draw out what the speed and the feel you're going to have to play. And that's what I would do with bands like Cat Bite and Matamosca, in contrast to like bands like Steady 45s and and uh, the Delirians, where I would have to focus a little more on the drummer, and the other bands have to focus more on the on the guitarist. Having an organ and a ska, I think, is a a big asset. Oh yeah, definitely. I I think I think it's I I don't I don't know. There's there's a I think it's subjective depending on who you talk to, but I feel like organ is is probably the most important thing to have because uh, it's it's just such a uh, what do you call it like a multifaceted like tool to have and it, and it evolves it evolves the style and not a lot of bands you know have horns or, or maybe back in the day couldn't afford horns so if they have a keyboardist the keyboardist would fill in all that empty space so i it's it's um what do you, what do you call it this uh it's a word for it amicable there you go it's really amicable it, it it's like it's used on almost everything when it comes to jamaican music yeah um so yeah this that that's just kind of the the thing where like I remember when I was younger, I was very much, very much about like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to get through the gig, just trying to get through the gig. And then nowadays I'm very much like studious where I'm like, ah, that's how, that's how it clicks. And that's what I'm doing. That's how it works. And I apply a lot of it into, you know, uh, like Omnigon songs and I'll play a lot of it into Jair songs. There was a whole mess of applications into the Jair songs and into the Catfight songs where I wasn't just playing traditional ska, ska organ bubbles and ska organ skanks. I was moving around. Cause like my I, I went at I went at it was a it was an approach of like cool it sounds modern but I also want to bring a, a twist of like old you know because because people who are the old heads will understand and be like oh this the guy who they got understands what he's doing and understands the comp- the style to complement you know bidi bidi bam bam or to complement bad influence or to complement the co- the the cover that that Jared does on on their album so it's, it's just stuff like it's just to show. Just to show the crowd, like, okay, this 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 is a, a well-rounded group instead of just like, oh, they all they know how to play is Scott Punk, you know. Can you explain real briefly what the bubble is for people who don't know, you know, the, what that word means? So the bubble is basically like, uh, if you hear it in a song, it's basically like the bukaku, bukaku. It's basically the off. It's basically your your. So you switch your offbeat. So when I said doing your offbeat on the right hand and then your and the onbeat on your left hand. You switch it so now your offbeat is on your left hand and your onbeat is on the right hand, and that's mostly known in reggae music. But also, it's, you could also use it in ska, because if you take off your uh, your right hand, you're basically just doing the skank with your left hand. So it it kind of complements where you could just do we could do you could do reggae influences on ska music and then vice versa. So like, I call it a I call it a bubble. Yes. Okay. So um, you're playing in uh, Bandaloos currently. Yeah, that's that's currently the, since I moved up here to Portland, it just became a lot e- a lot easier to play to work with that band. I've been working, I had a working relationship with Jeremy and the guys for a long time, um, and I've been really good friends with Curtis and Morgan for longer than that. Uh, so it, it just kind of naturally kind of came together. And when I moved up here, I was like, "Yo, you know, Mandela's could be my home base, and I could have a I could have something to play around with." You know, meanwhile, uh, at that time, you know, meanwhile the world's exploding because of COVID, and uh, I, I could figure life out, you know, a day at a time. And it's cool because they, they work at a pace that, at least at home, I could I could balance um, work life and family life, and I could balance the Bandulus. In contrast to like Mata Mosca, like 
I kind of was about the Mosca, like I control the whim and I control the workload and I can, I pretty much manage the group and the group decides if they want to go at the speed that I'm going or they say, Hey, you know, can't do this and they can't do that. And we go to a compromise, you know? And then, uh, yeah. So they're, uh, Andy, Anthony Cotham. Yo, yeah, that's my boy. That's your boy too, apparently. He's our, yeah. Well, he wants, he wanted to, he wanted to say, um, that you, uh, butcher his solo on Mr. Bad Luck. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Um, I was drunk, dude. I mean, what do you, what do you expect? I, I got, I, I know exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the show like, uh, like a month ago where I just got wasted. Like he get, he's the one that contributed to that. He's all, do you want anything? And I'm just like, I'll take a shot and a beer. And he comes and he brings a shot and a beer. So. Hey, hey, he's just as responsible as as I was. I'm, I'm a victim of circumstance here. Yeah. He also says that you need to come over to his house and uh, pick up the combo organ that uh, you said he said you can have. Yeah, the Yamaha organ. So lately, I've been I've been doing a lot. Of, so yes, yeah, so lately I've been doing a lot of cumbia, and we were talking about organs that are appropriate for cumbia. And uh, he he shot me some good recommendations, and I looked into them, but they're a little bit out of my 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 uh, my, my finances right now. So he's all like, oh, I got this organ, and I checked the organ out on YouTube, and I was like, yo, this, that's pretty close to the sound that I want. So I got to pick it up. The one thing I didn't realize is that the organ is pretty big, so I got to figure out a size thing. I want it, but I got to figure out where I can fit it in my, in my two-bedroom apartment. Okay. Did you all, have you always gone hard live? Because you seem like you go pretty hard live. Um, hmm. You know what? I, it depends on the band that I play with. And it depends on how comfortable I am with the band. Because there's some bands that I, I don't feel comfortable going hard with because either I'm doing a lot or I just don't feel it too much. It's just like a, like a either the music is kind of okay or the environment doesn't really call for me to go too hard. Um, but like like cat bite shows, like, dude, I'll, I'll, I'll think outside of the box and I get a little scared of the fact of like... Um, you know, messing up or something where I'm just like, ah, like I, ho- I hope, I hope what I'm, I think about doing in my head works and doesn't blow up in my face, you know, like picking up the keyboard. I get scared about unplugging the keyboard and I'm fucked, you know, and I'm just like, fuck this, this you know, this is what I get for trying to show off. Um, with Matamoska, <clears throat> I was, I think I was just unfamiliar with the band in the beginning. I, Cause I, I played in the band since I was 17. And as a 17 year old, I just, I just kind of focused on wanting to play good. But then I, I think it started when when I started playing bigger shows and I started dancing and I was like, you know what, this could be my thing because I don't see many dancing keyboardists aside the fact that I see Tokyo Sky dance and play. And um, that kind of drew the inspiration. I was like, you know what, I'll be the dancing keyboardist in the US. I'll be, I'll be the guy. And so I kind of just started like taking on the role of like, if I dance, people have to dance with me because I don't want to feel uncomfortable. Um, and then I kept, it kept, with Mata just became the thing where we just started like kind of kind of going wild. Uh, Bandulus is like reggae music, and and there's there's days where I'm moving and grooving, but for the most part, like reggae music, kind of kind of needs more of my attention with my hands than it does with my feet. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's 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 definitely been bands that I've danced with, and there's definitely been bands that I haven't danced with, just for A, B, or C reasons. Mm-hmm. And you've like busted keyboards at concerts before. You know what? I've busted keyboards at rehearsals. At rehearsals. So you go, you're going hard at rehearsal too. No, no, no. I, oh my god. Okay, so I, so remember that keytar I bought. I bought this. I bought that keytar, and I'm excited to fucking take it to practice. I had I had Sasa Joskinger practice that night, and I'm taking it out, and I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. And I put on the strap, and I didn't know about strap locks, 
and the fucking keyboard falls out of my fucking falls out of my strap and it hits the floor hard, and it and it left this black chip on the corner, and I'm like fuck, I barely bought it for I barely had it for twelve hours and I fucked up this fucking keyboard already, and every, my whole band just started laughing and I'm just like yeah, this is what I get for fucking being a show off, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but this um this uh keyboard wise. I've definitely so I just got my Nord. I just got my Nord back. I, I have my Nord behind me, and that that the damage was caused by by the show. I was playing a show in Denver, and my singer didn't make it because it's flight delay. So I, I had to sing. I had, I had to bust this Vic Ruggiero Fat Mike esque thing where I'm singing and I'm not singing good, you know. Um, Vic sings great. Fat Mike doesn't sing good. So the Vic Ruggiero aspect comes <laughs> in the fact that I'm I'm singing and playing keys, you know. Sure. Um, and so this uh, some some guy drops Jack and Coke all over my keyboard, and I'm here thinking that my shit's ruined, and I'm like, "Fuck, you know what the fuck did I do?" And uh, and my keyboard still worked, and it wasn't until you know just last earlier last year my keyboard didn't work, and the guy that opened up my keyboard he called me. He's just like, "Hey, this is really concerning. There's like black liquid all over your motherboard," and I'm just thinking, "Ah, what could it be?" And I'm like. The Jack and Coke from Denver. Damn. Damn. Yeah. And it, it was just lame because it was just like, it wasn't my fault. You know, somebody just, just happened to spill Jack and Coke on me. Um, all over, all over me, my keyboard and me. And, and I just had to, you know, I was, I was dealt the hand that was given. Okay. So 2018, a supernova. You played in eight bands at that festival. No, 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 no. 2018 supernova, eight bands. Did I play in eight bands? It was. It was Western Standard Time. It was Semi K. It was Mata Mosca. It was Stereo Forty Fives. I did. I, I did a. I did a, a. A set with Adam Birch. Mm-hmm. Who else did I do that with? I was doing. Oh, with Pie Tasters. I jumped in for like a track with with Pie Tasters. Uh, it was like six bands, six five six bands, one or the other, like something like that. I don't know about eight bands. Like I gotta. I gotta remember. Some of them. Some of them probably just slipped my mind. You know. And this was the first time at that festival. It was the first time you played with Ben and Chris. Yeah, that was the first time I played with Ben and Chris. And also, I graduated college uh, the, that the Thursday before that. So I graduated college Friday. I jumped to play punk rock bowling with the forty fives. Took a red eye, barely made it to the forty five set, <laughs> and then uh, played the forty five set, and then chilled out the next day. And then the next day after, played with Mata Mosca. Just a side tangent. Um... Supernova 2021. Yeah, your brother earned the name Hooch. How? How was he? How did he earn the name Hooch? Uh, I, I, it was he was given the name Hooch out of out, out of keeping his name anonymous. He, the the guy who wrote this story about Hooch, uh, they didn't want to you know put him on blast. But we we ended up partying with our friends, and my brother got tired and sleepy, and I was incredibly drunk and. Uh, one of my friends ended up walking me to my to my hotel room, and because uh, I said I I'll, I'll, I said hey I'm I'm gonna I'm leaving I can't find my brother, and my friends all ah oh, your brother's gone just go just go I'll take you all right cool whatever, so he takes me and then I go to sleep and next thing you know I get a call like at four in the morning or, or something like that and I hear a door open and my brother comes and he just starts swinging at me in the middle of the night, and I'm like hey what the fuck's going on what's going on dude where were you at and he's all. I was sleeping in the van the whole time, the van that we came in, and you left me there. And I was like, I didn't leave you there. I thought you were here. And the next thing you know, you're not here. So I thought you were somewhere else. 
and he's just calling me an asshole. It's called me a bunch of names. Um, <laughs> and we were fighting, and we we stayed with John from from Kingpin. We stayed with him, so he woke up and he had to be like an angry dad, like, "Hey, you two have to stop." And I'm just like, "Dude, I don't know what the fuck's going on. We'll talk about this in the morning. I'm sleepy. You're sleepy. Like, let's go to sleep about it and let's wake up in the morning." And then in the morning, we woke up and we just hugged it out. We're like, "Yeah, you're tripping, dude. I I was drunk and you're drunk. Let's just keep it as that." <laughs> Um, the Madame Mosca covered a MIA on the rancid comp. Were you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of our, one of our patrons, Peter Hansen, he wanted us to ask about that. Cause, uh, it's his favorite song on the comp. He liked how, um, you retained the melancholy aspect of the song, but also gave it a party vibe. So any, just curious about any, um, any aspect about recording that song and, and transposing that song to ska. Oh yeah, dude, it was totally fun, uh, and I think I posted I posted about it on on Twitter because uh, I I found the the demo of it. And it was the first demo we did. But Adam hit me up and he's like, "Hey, do you guys want to do a cover of Rancid?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, well, we we haven't recorded anything in a while. We're shaky. It's like mid pandemic or something, and we're trying to figure this shit out." And and he goes, "Just do listen like you know." I go, "What song was listed in my A?" And I go, "Cool, I'll have it to you in I'll have it to you in like a week or something or a day or some shit like that." And I took it, and I I took it as a challenge to myself. I know Adam was, I, I know Adam was gonna, you know, knows that we we're gonna finish it. But I was like, bet one day we're gonna get this, we're gonna get this done in a whole weekend or get everything started in a day. I told the rest of the guys that were in. We broke the song down, and um, and at that time, I I just I just left playing with the interrupters. Um, but I I remember I remember when I was with them, they would always play, um. The, the Jimmy Cliff album as their vocal rehearsal, and I, I just I just heard it enough for me to understand like the skinhead reggae and the little isms they're doing. I started hearing a lot of details, so that stuck in my head. So when we were doing like listed at my A, uh, I was like, oh, let's do like a traditional style, like a skinhead reggae, like a skinhead reggae feel. And um, and I just, and I it was kind of like a love letter with like with the, to, to the Jimmy Cliff album because Tim produced it, and it was also a love letter to the to the. Uh, Tim Armstrong solo album because I do a lot of the the shout outs in the back with the delays because that, that was like a big thing in all the, in all the the poets live album there's like you know you hear a bunch of delays you hear a bunch of shout outs that Tim does to the Agrilites so I started doing a bunch of that and then um we switched up the dialogue because uh, uh Lars talks about being from Oakland and we talk about from being east, from East LA so it was pretty cool the one the one thing we had was you know switching off switching up that one word there that that is not a appropriate word to say anymore yep. and we were like how do we do this how do we do this we're like we're, we're it wasn't even like a like a problematic thing we were just like oh let's just say attic you know it has the same motif didn't you guys use ma- maggot no no addict addict, oh, addict? treat him like an addict okay. yeah treat him like an addict um because i i think he's i think padilla was talking about it in the sense of like being treated like a like a crust punk or like a scurvy addict or something like that um and it i think it made sense contextually just being from east la like it's it's not it's not a clean place to be i, I feel like it's almost like oakland of socal because it's just very sure, sure yeah it's very cult it's culturally different you know it has a bunch of culture to it and i from what i remember oakland had a lot of culture to it but i heard otherwise from another friend of mine that it's starting to get judged by it or whatever that's everywhere in the bay oh <laughs> so fucked up um, but yeah, that, that's kind of the story we listed in my head. But I remember, I remember like on the demo, I was playing drums and I was thinking like, it should have this very like reggae feel. We shouldn't, 
we shouldn't really go too too ska about it. Maybe the only ska part that we did was the chorus, but everything else is kind of like Jimmy Cliffish, and then we'll add the element of like a poet's life. So it's kind of like a big love letter to like the productions of Tim Armstrong instead of Tim Armstrong himself. Or like he's a he's a producer. I gotta make it sound like it like he produced it, but we did it ourselves. You know. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's a good approach. So okay. Um... Right before lockdown in early 2020 is when you recorded a Mr. Kingpin album. Yeah. Uh, you, did you fly over to Texas to do that? No, he flew over to LA with me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, it, it he, I mean, th- there's a story behind that. Cause before we recorded two songs and we were just throwing, we were just sharing, um, demos and I and he told me pick any songs that you like and that you you feel are easy for you to work with, and it was the first time somebody kind of trusted me with their with their production ideas. And I was and, and I mean nowadays I'm more com- more comfortable of being a producer when it comes to that style of music, or starting to be more comfortable because there's way better people out there than me. Um, but I, I I started being a little more comfortable with the fact that I could I could make songs. But back then I used to be like oh I, I don't know like I'll give it a shot and if you like it you like it if you don't like it you don't like it. Um, and so I got my, my friend, Chris, Chris, Chris Bourbon. And I, I think he's like one of the best ska and reggae drummers, like, uh, of, of the modern time at the moment. So I hit him up and I asked him to record, um, drums off these two, off these two demos, but he couldn't hear the demo. So I memorized, I memorized the count and I was telling him, you know, chorus verse. I was just kind of like mouthing him off as he was playing. I send everything to to John and then John would record guitar and bass and then I record keys over it. And then when we had the whole thing completed, John really enjoyed it. So then after that, he was like, Hey, I really want to make an album with you. So he came for a weekend and we were shedding out the songs. And then the next day we recorded them on drums off with no, no sense of direction whatsoever. It was just kind of me and him, me and John kind of saying, here's where you're going to do a verse, a chorus, a bridge, do a roll like this. Give me a rhythm like that. Do something like this. Make it sound like Trits in the Matos. We were giving just very vague direction, and and Chris cut on like very fast, um, and then my friend Ray did bass on it, and Ray plays plays lead guitar on Matamosca, but Ray has his um Ray has another band called Rhythm Ambassadors, and he also does like Nintendo covers in traditional ska, like traditional like Skylight ska, and uh, I really like his bass playing, and I know that that Ray and Chris they're like really really close friends, so they they have that chemistry. And it clicked up, and then I got my brother to be on it to, to do rhythm because me and my brother always wanted to be in a band together. And my brother's rhythm is really tight, and so he got to do rhythm, and then he did leads, and then I did keys over it, and then we sent it to our friend John to mix it. There's a video that um that uh, Mr. Kingpin posted where it's like you're on keyboard, and he's saying Esteban's pulling an all nighter to get his part, and you just you look kind of crazy. And you're just like playing. Yeah, it was towards the end of me living in LA because my goal was to get all my all my sessions out before I move, so I don't have to instantly fly back and have to do something. Because I was going to be in Oregon for at least at least a month or something, so I could move in and get comfortable. So I had a piano at, in my studio, and I had my Nord, and I had a couple other pieces of keys to to record. And I I think I had just quit my both my jobs. I was working as a as a retail online retail guy at at Vons and I was working as a caregiver all overnight and I recently quit both jobs so I had like a whole month of just catching up and so for towards the end of that month I was recording keys 
for Kingpin, and then like the last the last week of that, or even the last day of of me living in LA was when I was uh when I was recording, like if I left on a Friday, like that Wednesday before, I was recording organ for for ordinary life. Uh, the or my my organ session for uh nice one didn't happen, so Tim gave me the draws and just told me recording from wherever I'm gonna be at, and so then I took everything with me. So I was recording like three albums back to back to back before I left LA, like that same week, within that same week. I recorded Nice One, Ordinary Life, and the Kingpin album. I want to jump forward a little bit. Um, in uh, 2021, uh, you, were, you were touring with uh, We Are The Union and uh, their van got broken into. And uh, right after it happened, or what was it, the day of it happened, you, you were... You were at Berkeley. The band was playing, opening for Slackers, and, and Adam and I were at that show. So we were kind of experiencing your guys's, um, you know, immediate reaction to this situation. Mm-hmm. And in your situation, uh, you didn't just lose equipment, right? There was like a, it was a. Can you tell tell a little bit about what happened for you, or? You know, if you if you're comfortable with that. Oh yeah, I'm comfortable. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's like I definitely talked about it in therapy, so I'm like super comfortable about it now. Um, so we got our stuff stolen, and at first I was thinking like, okay, my backpack stolen, and I lost the Matamosca files because Matamosca is we're like we we're now thinking this. I managed to recover the file. They recovered some of the files, and I got to re-record a bunch of the stuff. We're like basically done with our new album. We just need one more song for vocals, but. At the time, we were like, man, I lost all those files. We're going to have to re-record everything. Um, and then it was kind of like slowly, I was like, oh, I lost my, I lost my, uh, my, you know, extra cl- pairs of clothes. Oh, I lost my Switch. Oh, I lost my games. And then it just hit me like, like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh, I lost my green card. I lost my residency card. And I'm looking at it. And then I just started crying, like. So like I mean, and everyone in that van, everyone in that van heard me fucking sobbing, and and I, you know I I'm I did apologize for crying like that, but it's just like you know you just lost a part of you. It's 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 you know it sucks as an undocumented immigrant to lose something that important, um, and you kept it in your backpack in your van with the idea that you're gonna have it somewhere safe, and that's the reason I don't want to take it out because I am the type of guy who loses things in their pockets, and I take things out of my pockets and I misplace them, so. Um, it was heartbreaking. It was just incredibly heartbreaking. And like, thank goodness now I am I am I am in the last steps of of fixing that uh, and getting my my ten year residency. Which um now because I've been in the country for a while legally, uh, I could officially apply for citizenship. Which that would probably happen within the next within the next year or so. So I'm I'm happy for that. It it all it all had a happy ending, but I remember the terrible feeling that happened when that like I just it was so overwhelming. I couldn't. I couldn't fight the level of grief that I had. And I tried being strong. Like when everybody was kind of losing their shit, I was very like, like, you know, it's like somebody, it's like somebody, you know, died in front of us. We're like, let's be calm. Let's be okay. Let's be cool. And then the minute I realized I lost something, it's like an, an, an immeasurable grief that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I just started crying about it. It was crazy. You came to the U.S. to to L.A. Uh, when you were about three years old, right? Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, three going to four. So it was back in nineteen ninety six. And so you were, um, 
you you ended up becoming a, a dreamer, right? You 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 were got accepted yeah. to DACA at some point. Yeah, my brother, my brother and I were we were we're like considered like the first dreamers when the when the 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 act got passed. I see. And so um, now I'm curious what that was like. And did, wasn't was there a point when you lost dreamer status when you got older? Yeah, there there was the point, and I, and I mean a lot of it was was out of my own my own doing at uh, uh, some state. How so? Uh, cause when, so I got my dreamer, I got my card when I was, when I was 20 and then I applied for my first job. And then while I was, well, I was working my first job, I ended up getting, uh, uh, wet reckless. I, I was drinking and driving and I was underage and I was without a license. I was an idiot. It happens. You know, everybody has, everybody has a story. Um, and this, um, and this, uh, that affects your status, you know, it, it, it either elongates it or it just makes you unavailable to, to have something. People with DUIs cannot get dreamer status. And then, um, I was just lucky enough that the judge that, that had, you know, given me the, giving me the, the verdict or the, the, the sentence or whatever. Um, he was really nice to me and he saw me and he was, you know, he looked at me and it was weird because he kind of looked like the the Kentucky Fried Chicken guy. He had like the same beard and the, the same face structure. I just remember that, like, oh, the Chicken Man helped me out, you know. Um, <laughs> and he, I, I'm serious. He looked at me. And he had the glasses and he had the white hair, and I'm like, this guy looks like he's a Kentucky Fried Chicken guy. He's Colonel Sanders. Um, <laughs> and he looked at he looked at me and he started he you know he looked at my my sentence and he looked at me like in shock like this kid was drinking and driving and without a, without a without a license. And he looked at me. And he goes, you know, drinking a little too a little too much, huh? And he started laughing. And he goes, you know what, man? I'm in a good mood. Uh, this is supposed to be like you know a felony, but I'm just gonna give you an infraction. Just don't do that again. You know, six six hundred hours and pay twelve hundred dollars. And that was like a blessing. And but the thing too is that I still had an SR twenty two on my car, and I was and I was banned from having a license for a year. So I didn't get my I didn't get my official legal license till I was twenty one uh, from the DMV. So I I was a late bloomer when it came to that. During that year, were you driving without a license? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> my my mom's my mom tells me she's just like you can't drive without a license. I go, what do you mean? I got hands and I got legs. What do you mean I can't drive? Like <laughs> I got places to go. I got shows to play. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, this, this might be self-incriminating evidence, but I mean, come on, it's like 10 years ago. What's going to happen yeah, now, you know? Nothing now. Yeah. So this, um, uh, that, that happened. And so, uh, I had my, my, I still had my residency still fresh. So I have X amount of years going on, uh, like to left into my, into my residency. They're not going to cancel it. They're just going to let me live it out until it, it expires. And I had this really, and I, I had this job working at, at, a. I worked as a bus boy at a at a adult bar, and I was twenty one. It was a, it was a, it was a job with my my uncle or one of my best one of my really close friends that I called my uncle, but he got me in saying that he, I was his family. So he got me this job and it paid really good. It was really good money, and then uh, the the time just the time came when my 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 uh, residency or my permit was gonna about to expire, and I had to tell my job, and then they told me, well, unfortunately, you know, due to you know, X reasons we can't have you working here uh, with an expired workers permit. So I I worked till my last day on my workers permit. They let me go, 
and then um, it took me a really long time to get my workers permit again. I I didn't get it maybe for like another I don't know two years. And the whole time that was happening, I told I swore that I was not gonna work um, a warehouse job anymore because before before DACA I was working my warehouse job, which is the reason I started throwing shows. And that's that's that was when I was working like incredibly hard jobs. I was working I was working event setup. I was working uh, furniture setup. I was working I was working so many backbreaking jobs and doing you know things that kids my age at the time seventeen year olds shouldn't be doing to make money to afford college. And it's and I you know I still think about undocumented immigrants nowadays, and we're subjected to having such harsh work conditions for peanuts. You know when we're working fields and we're working jobs that typically other people do not like to work so we could make ends meet for our family. So, yeah, I mean, I would like to say that immigration and immigration policy is a very soft spot in, in my heart because yeah. it's something that I lived through. And I lived a really rough... I, my family, was we were subjected to a really rough upbringing. You know, as a kid, I thought it was okay, it was normal. But, like, you know, I lived in a flower shop and I took bird baths as, as a 15-year-old to get ready to go to a ska show. I slept on a roof with cockroaches and, and rats, my brother. And then, you know, on the weekends, I'll be on the streets because I didn't want to be home. I didn't want to be home staying, living in a roof, eating bread. So I would escape, you know, through through going to shows and staying over friends' houses. It was, it was, it's a rough life. It was a really rough life. And, and then nowadays, like, I think about it and I use that, that trauma that I have. And I use it as a focal point uh, as of creative release or, you know, to try and be an inspiration with people saying, hey, you know what, people like me, they go places if you just put your mind to it, you know, you got to just refocus your energy into doing positive things or into doing art that's beneficial to people. Now, when you lost your job uh, at 21 or 22, um, didn't you basically um, make money by selling buttons, like starting a company, Brixton Buttons? Yeah, look at this guy. Fucking Nardwar over here. Scardward. Scarward. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't want to go back to the warehouse, like you said. So you said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell buttons to bands." I'm gonna sell buttons to bands. My, my, my best friend and my the singer of Matamosca, he's the one that told me. Um, I, I remember we were at a rehearsal and I was telling him this predicament, like, "Hey, I'm gonna be out of a job." And I think he said it as a joke, but I think he was serious because he was just like, "Just make buttons, man." And I'm like, "What do you mean?" And he goes, "Yeah, man. If you sell, you know, a hundred buttons at at twenty five dollars, that's twenty five cents a button." If you buy the merchandise, you know, you know that for a whole bag of a thousand buttons, that's you know fifty bucks. You're you're only wasting five cents per piece, and you're making twenty five twenty five cents profit. And I made all the I made all the I made all the math, and I'm like, you know what? I actually could make some money out of this. Like two hundred buttons will break even, and I'll and I'll make my money back. And then I have eight hundred buttons to make, and I can still make two hundred extra dollars. So I started promoting myself, and I started doing this thing. And people were really responsive. They were responsive, really, yeah, really receptive, really responsive. And they were asking for buttons because it was just competitive and efficient, like, uh, merch prices. Like, I would drive to people or I would ship for cheap or people would come to me and, and I'll just give them buttons. And I got better at it, too, to the point where I could just, like, do, I could knock out a thousand buttons, you know, in, in, in almost in a day and a half, two days if I was given. And it, it became pretty cool. And then, like, um, during that time while I was making buttons, I was also like, that's when I started really, really grinding on playing with, with, you know, eight, eight, I was playing from five with five to eight bands to get paid. That's when I started actually asking for payment for shows. Cause before that I play shows for free. I mean, 
you gotta think about that. So between the ages of 17, 21, I was playing shows just for free. And then from 21 and on, I was just like, you know what? I gotta get paid because I gotta pay, afford tuition. I gotta charge tuition. And um, I was doing buttons and then I was doing full time college. And then I was, you know, Thursday to Sunday, I was just gigging every single night. I was, I was doing the, the three hour bar gigs with this band called The Bait or with other, these other bands. I was doing the Thursday nights at the slide bar. I was, I was, uh, there's nights where I had three gigs a night where I was, uh, you know, playing in San Diego one day or playing in San Diego in the morning, playing Riverside in the afternoon and then playing the Valley in the night. And then I'll be back home by three in the morning. Like I was just doing stuff like that. And at the same time, trying to maintain my grades in college. And I was still, you know, ranking, like I graduated with like a B plus GPA, which is like commendable, you know I mean? Doing, doing the, doing the damn thing. And, um, I graduated debt free think, thanks to that. So when, uh, after that Berkeley show or at the Berkeley show where, um, you know, the van got broken in for where the union, I believe you told me that this was the third craziest thing that happened to you on tour. Yeah, this is the third. I think this is the third craziest thing. The first craziest thing that happened was <laughs> the study. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the, in the, in the van, but, um, I wasn't in the van, but, um, my band, the study 45s, we were touring with Bandulus. They got hit by a car going about 120, 100, like I was going about 120. The van, the van hit, the car hit the trailer and the trailer hit the van and then the trailer flew and it dragged the van. So the van and the trailer flipped. And it flipped to the side of the desert, and it was this was on the freeway from going from Yuma to to Phoenix, and um, it was disastrous. It was like, man, this is, this is calamity right here. This is crazy. What was anyone? Was anyone? Was everyone okay? Yeah, there was just a ton of hurt equipment, and then uh, after that, the forty fives. I think they they uh, chilled out on on doing that much touring just because mm-hmm. they just want to be safe, and they got a little more like uh, tour conscious, you know? Yeah. What about the guy in the car going one hundred and twenty? Uh, the guy. So the, apparently, the guy was high on promethazine, and he didn't even know what was going on. He was like, "What's going on?" And the guy got arrested. Oh, I wonder where he is now. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then, the, the, I mean, it could, it, it could probably be the, the, the it could probably be the uh, competitor for second or first worst thing. But <laughs> my first actual tour, um, that I that I booked was Matamosca in the 3045s and um when I played Seattle for the first time we were playing at this place called the High Dive and I was expecting one of my friends to meet up with me he didn't show up and he was kind of um quiet with me for a while and I was you know trying to see what was going on and he's gonna meet up with me and we're gonna hang out and after the show the show the show was kind of a a bum but whatever you know we were like okay well you know nobody knows who Matamosca is and 3045s are at the time and uh, when I got when I got to where we were gonna stay at, my friend announced that he had uh, soft, uh, cancer in his esophagus, and uh, that was probably um, one of the worst news that I got, or the, one of the worst news that I've seen. And it was it was terrible, you know. It's it's terrible knowing that you had you want to be there for somebody, and then you were just powerless to be there because you're you know a thousand miles away. Yeah. So that was kind of like emotionally, I was just like, man, this shit sucks. Like I wish I was there with my friend to cheer him on. Um, you know, fortunately he passed. I, I did. I did go to see him. I did Sorry go to, to see him. That. No, no worries, man. It, it ha- it's, it's already been years. I mean, it, it happened uh, 2016. 
Um, but this, uh, I definitely put that as a as a the worst thing that happened. On, one of the worst things that happened on tour because you know I was on the road when I heard the news. So yeah, and so then next thing you know I got my green card jacked, and so I was just like, yeah, this, I'm a calamity on, on 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 the road. I don't know, man. Like some people have told me that I'm bad luck on the road. <laughs> what? Here's a here's a tour story I want um, you to talk about. Um, your I'm not really totally sure of the details, but you're you're stuck in a state, and I think you have to stay behind with the van while the rest of the band goes on, and you have to stay with the van to get it fixed. Yeah. Okay. okay. Fill me in on the rest of the story. So this this might be. Is this number four? It, it it's one of I mean there's there's so many I'm telling you <laughs> I. I don't want to scare anybody in <laughs> in the bad time tour, but if you're gonna if you're gonna get a jump on the van with me, you gotta fucking be ready for whatever's gonna happen. Yeah, and I'm gonna be so nonchalant about it, like yeah, it happens. It's just gonna be like, oh, it's normal. Let's let's just try and get through this and get to the next gig. <laughs> okay, this this might be a little bit of like I don't know I don't know if it's trigger warning warning, but so so Mata Mosca, we were on tour with you know with Be Like Max. That's that's just kind of how it was. That's just kind of is before all this thing happened. We we're on tour with them, and they be like Max was was cool enough to to take us to this to to Denver. It was our first time in Denver, and we and on our way and before Denver we played Salt Lake, and I was with my with my singer and I was with a couple of my bandmates and the van and our van started acting weird. It started there was an exhaust issue and something's going on or. We couldn't figure out what was going on, but it it let it left us to 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 go from Reno to Salt Lake City going forty miles an hour. So you could only imagine how long we were on the road for. And and we made it. We made it to the Beehive Social. We played the Beehive Social, and we were just talking about the van. We were like, "Well, we got to get to Denver. We're just gonna go really slowly." We ended up taking the van to Denver, and we we barely ended up making our set, and we played a set. The next day, the van's not being responsive, and we're worried. We're like, "What's going on?" And then we take it to a a fleet. I think fleet fixes trucks, and they fix vans, and they they fix you know all sorts of cars. So we take it to the fleet, and and I skip out on on one of the dates. They left the the Matamosca guys jump in with the Be Like Max guys because they have a big enough van, and they fit they fit them. And I go, I'm going to stay. You know, I'm a keyboardist. You don't really need a keyboardist. You have horns. You have guitars. Do your thing. And I spend an extra day in Denver. And then the fleet guy says, you're not going to be able to make it out today. You know, this is this is a, a tomorrow fix for sure. So I stayed there an extra day. And I ended up hanging out with one of my friends, Daniel. He's, he's in Italy now. He's a cool guy. So the next thing you know, I'm, uh, I get there at 6 in the morning. The guy says the van is ready. And... And the be like Max guys and and, and the the Matamosca guys they're in they're on their way to El Paso, and I and I tell them I'm gonna be there in El Paso. I promise you I'll be there by by right before our set. And everyone's telling me telling me, dude, it's it's a far drive. You're not gonna make it. Just make it, but don't don't rush it. And at this point, I just get like I just I'm just in this mindset where I'm just like I'm indestructible. <laughs> if 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 this tour was gonna kill me, it should have killed me days ago. It should have killed me years ago. There's so many things that, that happened to me. I'm pretty sure I could get through this. So I, I literally just like I get on Wi-Fi and I download I download the entire discography of Tokyo Scott Paradise Orchestra, the entire discography, all ten albums and all the live albums, everything. And I'm like, this should be enough material to get me through the entire run. So I start from album one, and it it, it was 
I made it from Denver to El Paso in 10 hours. And I was going, at some point, you know, I'm taking this giant diesel bus and I'm, we're going like 100 miles an hour. So we're like a bullet. We're just cutting down. <laughs> we're just cutting, we're just cutting down. I'm just, I'm just trying to make it to El Paso. And there was some point where I was so close to El Paso, but it started raining super hard. And I'm just like, holy shit, I'm going to die. Holy shit, I'm going to die. But I'm at least listening to my favorite band. So I'm fucking, I'm just on the sick one. I'm just like, I'm going, I'm going, I'm fucking ripping through fucking the, the traffic, ripping through everything. And I start hydroplaning. And I'm just like, oh shit, I'm hydroplaning on a fucking <laughs> bus. This is going to suck. But I just kept speeding and then I just cut through. And uh, I, I barely made like my set with, with the bands. And uh, yeah, it was scary. I mean, thinking about it now, it's just like, dude, I wouldn't do it. Like in my sound mind, in my sound, like right now that I'm sound, and sane and normal? Fuck no, I wouldn't do it. That's fucking stupid. <laughs> the shit you do on tour. Yeah. Dude, I'm down. I Sure, I'm a liability, but I'm fucking down. Like, I'll do whatever. All right, bad time. Bad time records bands. <laughs> Get ready. You've been warned. Yeah, we, we, we're going to... It's going to be bad bitch records by the time we're done. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at In Defense of Scott. Pick up Aaron's book, In Defense of Scott, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leading you by saying Ska now more than ever. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.